Well, Grateful Dead there for you on Wednesday afternoon. Welcome to Discussions. I'm your host, Ian Hamilton Trottier. This is a special edition. Last week, if you missed the program, don't feel left out. Art Basel took over a number of hours, is my understanding, and certainly the 5 o'clock hour. Uh, as it came into Miami, it's the largest art festival, certainly in Miami on a yearly basis and quite possibly in the world. Art Basel, originally from Basel, Switzerland, locations in Hong Kong, Miami, and Basel. So the Grateful Dead are a very special band, and certainly I grew up listening to the and continue to grow up listening to them. And uh, I think they are touring uh, without, of course, their famed lead singer, Jerry Garcia. I want to give a very special shout-out to a, a person that uh, I've recently connected with. And uh, um, if uh, you're listening uh, in Canada there, uh, Fabiola... Uh, hello, and uh, thanks for listening. Uh, I can get into Fabiola's case at another time, but uh, certainly would want the uh, the uh, uh, privilege and um, uh, uh, permission to do so. But um, uh, anyway, I appreciate you listening to the uh, to the program today. In about three four minutes. We'll be joined by former CIA agent John Kiriakou, who will be rejoining the program. Uh, he was on a few weeks ago and uh, was actually scheduled to be on last week. But uh, because the, uh, cause the time, time slot uh, got sold uh, to um, a higher bidder, if you will. No, I don't know if that's, uh, that's true or not, but... Uh, uh, when that uh, festival moves into town, it takes uh, takes uh, takes uh, all the hotels out. It takes all the restaurants, books all the restaurants up, and it booked the hours up of this uh, uh, wonderful station. This is Winwood Radio, and again, I am your host, uh, Ian Hamilton Trottier. Um, I do have the five o'clock hour for you. Um, and, uh, let's see, that is a phone that I'm not going to answer and it should be muted. But anyway, so, um, the five o'clock hour, I will go with regularly, regularly scheduled, scheduled program and we'll be rehosting again, uh, JP Lindstroth. He's got his PhD from Oxford in England and will be talking to us about his new book. Uh, JP has dedicated a lot of his time to uh, empowering women's and women's rights. And when he was on the program last, he spoke about his time in Basque, the Basque region of uh, Spain. His new book is dedicated to poetry, and uh, we'll talk about uh, some of the poetry that he's contributed uh, through that uh, publication. He'll be joining at 5 o'clock. Now, next month is a great month, and we'll be starting the new year off. By the way, happy holidays to you and your family. We'll be starting the new year off 
by bringing on some incredible guests. Dan Winter will be joining us. He's a fractal field theorist and scientist, former system analyst at IBM. The way this man's brain operates is seemingly absolutely incredible and certainly unlike the majority of how our brains operate, personally speaking. He'll be on the show. He'll be our first guest for 2018, followed by Dr. Sherry Tenpenny. Uh, she's an osteopathic medical doctor, and we'll be talking extensively about vaccines, and we'll keep it on that tune, the vaccine tune, by hosting President of the National Vaccine Information Center later in the month, Barbara Lowe Fisher. Now, Barbara's work is absolutely incredible, and she's been dedicating a few decades to informing public about vaccines, uh, the benefits of and the risks of. I'm going to cut to a short break, and we'll be right back with you with Mr. John Kiriakou. Thanks for joining Discussions for this special Wednesday edition at the 4 o'clock hour on Winwood Radio. I am your host, Ian Trottier. Okay, thanks for that quick break. Again, you're on winwoodradio.com. I'm your host for your weekly program at the 5 o'clock hour. This is a special edition of the 4 o'clock hour, Ian Trottier. And uh, we have for a second time the brilliant and wonderful Mr. John Kiriakou with us again. John, are you there? I sure am. Thanks for having me. Dude, it's a total pleasure, man. And... uh, we, it's, it's, I thank you again for coming on in such a quick, it's, it was just a few weeks ago that, uh, that you were on and we had a great discussion and uh, I think a lot's probably happened in your life in that time frame and um, <laughs> dude, I mean, uh, you are an incredible guy. In fact, I was talking to a guy about you today and you know he says he's and let me just give you this angle he is comparing to other if you will and i don't like to use these terms like this but let's just use it for a moment blowing the whistle other people that have come out about wrongdoings in the government or in corporations or whatever so he drew a parallel and said hey look you know i mean i wouldn't have a problem with a guy like snowden but he gave too much information to other countries Uh, and so he says look that's very very treasonous however 
what John has done isn't that at all. And 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 if anything, John was very wronged by what happened to him and your case because what you did wasn't, as far as I'm concerned, wasn't treason at all. You were being honest, and certainly you probably broke that boundary with the the contract or whatever agreement you had with with the CIA. But um, that aside, know know that know John that you are admired. And uh, thank you, thank you Ian. I appreciate that very much. You're welcome, man. I appreciate that very much. So it's it's easy to it's easy to fall into a funk and um, and to. You end up dwelling on your own problems and your own trouble getting back into the swing of everyday life. So thanks. That means a lot to me. I appreciate it. I can't imagine what you've what you what you experienced. Um, and I was I was listening to an interview you gave in, in Denver and you were talking about um, being kind of accused of being a rat and. Um, and I guess in, in that environment, that's, those are, those, I think you used it in that interview. Those are fighting words. Um, and so I don't know, you know, and, (laughs) and I'm listening to you, John, and you're like, you know what? I stood up in the middle of the cafeteria and you, I mean, with, with you, and you said you were bluffing, but this guy didn't realize that you were bluffing, but I'm like, and I don't know what kind of man you are. You just seem like a really nice person. Um, and I don't know physically how imposing you are, but certainly you've been tactically trained to, you, you took down, uh, the number three, uh, operative, uh, in Al Qaeda. So it's not like yeah. you're uh, mince meat, but, um, you stand up with all these hardened criminals, murderers, rapists, X, Y, Z. And you're like, right. can you describe that? Can you describe that for listeners, John? Can you go through that again? I yeah, mean, yeah, I, yeah. I had made, made it all the way to practically the end of my sentence. And, um, and, uh, and, uh, I was in the cafeteria. Then the cafeteria is the only place in the prison where the guards are afraid for their own safety because you've got 1400 people and 10 guards and it's the only place where they can very easily be overwhelmed. Well, there was a new guy in the prison and the night before my, one of my cellmates who, who had been the, um, the auditor general of, of Cleveland, Ohio was in on a corruption charge said to me that he had been down in the, in the medical uh, unit and that there was a guy down there saying that I was a rat. And I said, who was this guy? Because like, like you said in your intro, when you call somebody a rat in prison, those are fighting words. Blood's going to be spilled. And, uh, and my celly said uh, he didn't know who he was, that, that the guy was new. So I said, point him out to me, Frank. I want to see who this son of a gun is. So the next day... Uh, in the cafeteria, Frank pointed the guy out to me, and I, and I had never seen this guy before. He had just arrived, and I don't know if he had read something about me or somebody had said something to him. I have no idea, but I knew that I had to nip this in the bud, and so I made a, a big scene. So I, I, I'm i going to temper my language uh, <laughs> for you. your listeners, <laughs> but I stood up in the cafeteria, and I shouted, hey! And to answer an earlier question, I'm 6'1", 250 pounds. I'm a big guy. Okay. I, I shouted, hey, you have something to say to me? And uh, <laughs> and this guy with a terrible skin, really scruffy beard, he said, you know what I said. And I said, let's settle it right now. Mm. So he, he said, uh, 
after dinner, you come to my room. And I said, F that. I said, right now. Well, this was over the Aryan table. And so one of the Aryans ran over to me and said, dude, don't fight this guy in here. If you do, we're all going to solitary. And I said, I'm going to kill this guy. (laughs) I had to put on kind of a show. (laughs) And so I got myself actually pretty worked up. And, uh, and one of the Italians, and when I say Italians, I mean with quotation marks around it. He was, he was a senior captain in the Bonanno crime family. Sicilian. He to be sitting next to me. Yeah, Sicilian. So he, he kind of tugged at my sleeve, and very softly he said, what in the world are you doing? And I said, I swear to God I'm going to kill this guy. And he said, no, you're not. You're going to finish dinner, and you're going to go back to my room, and you're going to read the USA Today. So I looked at him. He sort of shook me out of this fury that I was in. And I said, okay, I trust you. So I picked up my tray. I dropped it off at the little cleaning window. And I went to his room and I sat down and I started reading the USA Today. About 20 minutes he come, later, he comes back to his room. And he smiles at me and he said, it's all taken care of. I said, well, what's that supposed to mean? It's all taken care of. And he said, well, apparently this young man did not understand your status in the prison and in the Italian community. I'm not Italian, I'm Greek, but I was, I was adopted by the Italians in prison. <laughs> and I said, okay, all right. And I walked across the hall to my room. Well, a few minutes after that, here comes the guy with the bad skin and the scruffy beard. And I saw him out of the corner of my eye and he, he came to the entrance of my room. And I said, what do you want? Well, his lip was bleeding, his nose was bleeding, his eye was swollen. And very meekly and humbly, he said, I'm sorry I called you a rat. I should never have done that. And I apologize. And I thought to myself, well, now's not the time for weakness. So I said, get out of here before I break your legs. <laughs> <laughs> and the guy never spoke to me again. Never spoke to me again. But, you know, I, I remember, like, really being nervous as this was all going down, because here I had made it, like I say, virtually to the end of my sentence without anybody giving me any trouble, at least no trouble that I couldn't handle. And I could see that this was going to get physical very quickly. Yeah. Um, So, okay, it might sound interesting why I opened up the broadcast with that, but basically what I want listeners to understand is what they're dealing with, with John Kiriakou. And John, and I've said it again, I'll say it here again, I've said it before, I'll say it again, John is a, an American hero, as far as I'm concerned, and as far as you should be concerned, he should be considered as such. And, and now, so John, Thank you what, very I'm, much. what I'm portraying here is you're not somebody to mess around with. And you know, I like to think that I'm the nicest guy in the world, but, you know, prison's a different world. And no, in prison, I'm not someone to be messed around with. And nor in Pakistan and nor on your homeland. And so, John, is it, is it, is it, is it just to draw a comparison and say, hey, the way you called this guy out in federal prison is exactly the way you called out the employer, your employer, your federal employer. 
Oh, that's a that's a good question. You know, at the CIA, you are trained to believe that that everything in life um, is a shade of gray. Right? There are no rights and no wrongs. Everything is is some different shade of gray. And I found that that just wasn't true, that there are some things that are right and wrong. For me, torture was one of those things. It's just wrong. It's wrong under any circumstances, um, especially for a country that wants to appear to other countries to be a, a shining beacon of hope and democracy and human rights and civil liberties. And so for me, it was clear. Yeah, and let me... Let me, as I'm thinking through this this mm -hmm. response, uh, because nobody's really ever asked me that question before, um, I've changed over the years. Many people, we like to think that you know we we're set in our ways and we don't really change. I I've changed fundamentally over the last ten or ten or so years, mm -hmm. and um, and I feel more strongly now than I did ten years ago about blowing the whistle on torture, and. It was that fundamental belief in right and wrong and black and white that that I think led me to stand up for myself that day in prison as well. Yeah, okay. So not only did you stand up for yourself, but in many ways you stood up for all the rest of us uh, as taxpayers, as citizens, as anybody that's putting in a hard day's work with honesty and utmost transparent transparency. Let's shift gears a moment. And, and, and if you don't mind, because I know this information, you told it to me. And if it's not something you can get into, I understand. But I want to shift gears into the European Parliament. Can you describe? You recently took a trip. Uh, yes. And, 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 and when you got back and I had approached you and you'd said, hey, look, Ian, you know, I actually have an interesting story. I'd gotten into it. I don't know, really know what that meant. But can you tell listeners exactly what happened when you went to Europe and your uh, paint the picture of, 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 of why you were there, what they were hoping to get from you, what you were giving them, and then what happened? What sort of exchange transpired? Sure. I've made, um, I've made four or five trips to Europe since I got home from prison. Um, and, and always for work. Uh, you know, in, in Europe, they have such respect for whistleblowers and for national security whistleblowers in particular and human rights. And so I've been asked, for example, to um, help the Greek government write a new whistleblower protection law. I, I did a series of events in Germany, Luxembourg, um, where else? Iceland and Ireland related to the release of my second and third books. Uh, there's just... They, 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 they treat whistleblowers differently. They treat whistleblowers with respect, and they realize the value um, of whistleblowers to society there. So a couple of months ago, no, well, less than that, about a month and a half ago, I was invited by a member of the European Parliament um, from Greece. His name is Stelios Kouloglou. He, um, he's a member of the, the governing Syriza party, which is a, a progressive party. And he asked me to appear on a panel uh, on national security whistleblowing uh, before the European Parliament. I was delighted to accept. And actually, when I was in prison, I received an invitation to speak at the European Parliament. And so I wrote a speech, and um, and my attorney went and delivered it for me. 
So I was excited to go do it in person, and and I went. I was only in in Brussels for a day. I just flew in to give the speech and then fly back out again. When I arrived, um, I went to the European Parliament straight from the uh, from the airport, and uh, we were meeting with several different MEPs and just getting the the agenda, the last minute details of the agenda together. And then one of the other speakers, one of the other Americans who had been asked to speak. Uh, who was a representative of uh, People for Bernie, which became Americans for Bernie, hmm. um, announced quite dramatically that she would not appear on a panel if I were going to be on the panel. Hmm. I thought she was kidding, and I actually laughed when she said it. Um, and she said, I'm sorry, I'm serious, but um, you appear on uh, the Sputnik radio network, and it's owned by the Russians, and I just refuse to be on a panel with you. Hmm. And uh, I, I, I was shocked to the point of being speechless. So the MEP was, was embarrassed by this. There were two panels I was going to speak at anyway. And so I was actually removed from that first panel. And instead, I gave, a, I gave an interview to Greek National Television for that hour. And then I spoke on the afternoon panel with Medea Benjamin and a couple of um, European whistleblowers. So it all, it all worked out. But... You know, it was just a reminder that the long judgmental arm of American political society reached all the way across the ocean to the European Parliament in Brussels and gave me a good smack across the face. Yeah. Wow. What sort of what sort of questions were asked you from your from from Greece? Um, and I know your your grandfather um, uh, uh, migrated to the United States and, and his wife, I'm assuming, a family, and it was a federal, a Franklin, Franklin Delano Roosevelt that, that actually personally met them and, and, as you had mentioned on the previous broadcast, gave them your start. Um, how, go ahead. Yeah. My, my grandfather, nobody loved Franklin Roosevelt more than my grandfather did. Uh, of course, I, you know, I was being facetious in that story. To hear my grandfather tell the tale, it mm -hmm. was as though Franklin Roosevelt met met them at Ellis Island and gave him citizenship and a job and a, and a house and, and allowed him to live happily ever after. And indeed, until the day my grandfather died in 1978, he had a framed picture of Franklin Roosevelt sitting on the on the television. Mm -hmm. So, so the Democratic Party was actually very important to me growing up. I, I my grandfather and I were very very close and. Uh, you know, he would tell me stories ranging from going to a Sacco and Vanzetti rally in 1921 when he came to the United States for the first time uh, to what it was like going through the Depression and then going back to Greece and then getting married and returning to the United States and Democratic politics and John Kennedy and, you know, the whole thing. He was just so proud to be an American. Yeah. And he, he credited Franklin Roosevelt, the Democratic Party, for for the success that he found in life. And when I say success, it was very modest success. My grandfather was a slab cutter in a steel mill. Hmm. And after he retired, he became uh, a butcher in a small grocery store. He lived in a house that when he died was worth $6,000 and uh, only owned a car during my lifetime. Before that, he never owned a car. So this was a guy of very modest means. But he instilled in me this sense that that we always have to work hard, that education is more important than anything, and that we always, always have to help people less fortunate than we are. Wow. Incredible. Incredible morals.
So this is this is an interesting thing, but 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 what I what I'm interested in hearing is is how this uh, Greek national television. How did they receive you, and what kind of questions uh, did they ask of you? And then of course this 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 ties into um, really our our previous uh, kind of note in in that. Um, and that we are living a system, and certainly it has modifications, but we're living a system today in the United States that, that's handed down through uh, through shapings uh, of the of the of the United Kingdom. But it all kind of incepts, and, and even most of the philosophies uh, are in, at Oxford and Cambridge are based off of um, really the birthplace of democracy, which would be Athens. Yeah. So. How how does uh, how how does that if you can if you would a mother, your mother country a mother country for you and certainly for the U.S. how how do, how do they receive you? Oh, you know, Greece is like paradise for me. Not just because of the pretty beaches and palm trees, but they treat me like a king. Hmm. I was only out of prison. I'm going to say four months when the Greek government invited me to go for the first time to discuss with them uh, the issue of a whistleblower protection law. And I, I thought, great, what a what a fun opportunity. I hadn't been to Greece in, I don't know, four or five years, so it, it was going to be a lot of fun. Well, I didn't realize that I was going to have a police escort wow. to all of my meetings. I was going to have dinner with the Minister of Justice in his home. Um, the Minister of State uh, for Anti-Corruption took me out uh, for, a, for a dinner at a restaurant with a dozen staff members. I did, I did television and radio interviews. And then when I got back to the States, yeah. uh, journalists found me here to, to do follow-up interviews on this whistleblower protection law. I made three trips to Greece uh, for that whistleblower protection law in uh, 2015, and they're just in the process of enacting it in the Greek parliament now. So the Greeks, more, more than anybody else in the world, they just treat me with great respect and love, and they love the fact that I'm Greek American, and I'm proud of my heritage, and yeah. that I, I served my country, the United States, and that I also want to help the people of Greece. With that said, after I blew the whistle on the torture program, um, I really didn't like the, the direction the country was going. And so I decided that I was going to apply for Greek citizenship. And wow. the Greeks welcomed my application. I got citizenship for myself and for all five of my children. Uh, really, it's just for ease of travel, and more importantly, it's if my kids want to go to to college or to a university or graduate school in Europe, they can mm -hmm. they can do that for free or for next to free. But I'm I'm proud to be an American, and I'm also proud to be a Greek. Yeah, sure. Now, what uh, what sort what sort of laws are they shaping? That what are they doing to to um, soften that? That whistle blowing, if you will, if that makes any sense. What 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 are they doing, and as as far as that that goes, um, on the Greek side, Greek side, and also European Union side. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you know, it's funny. Uh, there's really no agreement among EU members on whistleblower protections. Germany, for example, one of the most progressive countries on the continent has zero whistleblower protections and actually mm -hmm. actively prosecutes uh, some whistleblowers in the in the private sector. So Germany's really behind the times. The Greeks are very, very progressive, as are the Czechs and the Irish and a couple of other uh, countries. Greece had a really terrible whistleblower protection law where it essentially applied only to banking. 
and you had to physically see with your own eyes mm -hmm. a banking official taking a bribe or mm. laundering money. You know, you, you had to actually be in the room and witness it. So it was so narrowly written that as a result, nobody was ever prosecuted under that law. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So working with an Australian think tank that specializes on whistleblower issues, I offered them um, some new language for, for a law that focused not just on national security whistleblowing, but also um, uh, broader governmental whistleblowing. You know, there's a there's a big problem, for example, with corruption in Greece, official corruption. Sure. And um, so they they amended it and changed it and mm -hmm. moved things around and and really made it Greek. And uh, that's what they're going to vote on soon. Cool. And then the, the European side, you, you're looking at like uh, or we're looking at like Ireland as 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 kind of one of the forefront uh, movers and shakers to to make it more yeah, accessible. You know, yeah. It's, it's it's the oddest collection of um, of countries, and it's not just in the European Union. I, I was working with this Australian think tank called Blueprint for Free Speech, and they're they're the ones that go around the world and offer governments sample language on whistleblower protection laws. And so they've been able to successfully pass such laws in places as diverse as Canada and Zambia and um, hmm. Ethiopia. I mean, it's just the oddest thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I mentioned to uh, to the director of this think tank that I had a, a really great relationship with the current progressive government in Greece. Um, I thought I could get an appointment with the minister of justice. I, he ended up just being absolutely wonderful with me, and um, it, it it wasn't easy just because there are lots of competing interests and everybody wants to take responsibility for for something when it's a success. So. Um, so it took three trips, and it took uh, two and a half years, but we're just about there. What What does that language look like, John? Give us give us a give us give us an idea what what it, what it looked like before and then after being changed. Can you give us some words? Yeah. So before, like I told you, it was just so restrictive as to be not worth the paper it was written on. Mm -hmm. uh, now we're talking about. Protections. I mean, there's there's a there's an internationally recognized legal definition of whistleblowing, and that is bringing to light any evidence of waste, fraud, abuse, illegality, or threats to the public health or public safety. So it's around that definition that we're able to build a proposed law. Um, and it, it's the the basis of it is that people have to know and they have to understand and appreciate that they will be protected, that there won't be um, any retribution against them. For, for blowing the whistle, that there has to be a mechanism in place, and this is also very important because countries, many countries, including Greece, don't have, for example, an inspector general system uh, in, in their government. There's literally nowhere to go to blow the whistle other than to the public prosecutor, and a lot of people don't want to do that. And so it calls for the creation of an inspector general system in every ministry and department in government, and, um, and it lays out a foundation by which an employee, when he or she sees waste, fraud, abuse, and illegality, can go, in, in many cases, anonymously, if they choose to do so, and report that waste, fraud, and abuse. It just had never really occurred to them before. And really what they didn't appreciate was the fact that they needed such a law. They thought, well, we have a law in the books that's good enough. And it wasn't good enough. Wow. Okay. 
let's go. Let's go in now. Let's go into um, 9/11. And I and and I've heard you say this because I've listened to other interviews, and 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 you you see a big change. And certainly, certainly, there is a massive change since 9/11 happened to our rights. Um, yes. Now we know that anything, any social media post, anything you know, can be used as evidence against us. And then we've got. You know, we've got like drone 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 drops. Uh, we can be taken out uh, without any real reason. Uh, stuff like that. It just sounds like absurd, yeah. right? Oh, listen, when when the Attorney General of the United States uh, tells a sitting U.S. Senator, I'm talking about Eric Holder and Rand Paul. When Eric Holder tells Rand Paul with a totally straight face that the president has the authority to kill an American citizen on American soil without benefit of trial, you know we have a problem. That is a direct and dangerous threat to our civil liberties. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean that just sounds totally absurd. And how absurd? How can this be law? Um, how? How, John? And 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 what? What? What happened in nine eleven? I mean, what, what happened? And 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 what's what's the best way to kind of? I mean, this is what. I'm attempting to do right by broadcasting. This is one of the things I'm trying to do by broadcasting on a weekly basis to try to educate and inform listeners, get them to say, oh, wow, wait, wait a second. Who's this John guy that got slammed in jail for two years? That was looking at 40 years that was charged with treason that could have been could have, could be receiving the death, could have received a death penalty type crime. And all he did was say, hey, wait, this guy's getting tortured. That's against U.N. law. Right? I mean, yeah, that's it, what yeah. I'm... And, and, you, and international law, United Nations law, has the power of law in the United States. That's something that most Americans don't understand. This, this all started with the passage of the Patriot Act. You know, we were, we were angry and, and almost no one in Congress had the guts to vote on the Patriot Act. And indeed, I, I couldn't even name a single member of Congress who actually took the trouble to read the Patriot Act. <laughs> Right, we were all furious with Al Qaeda. We yeah. wanted revenge. We wanted to to kill them all. We wanted to, you know, get our September 10th country back. But nothing ever changed back. It's only gotten progressively worse. And this is the thing about the intelligence community, mm -hmm. especially about the uh, about the CIA. The CIA will constantly push the boundaries of propriety and of legality to see what they can get away with. And it's up to the oversight committees on Capitol Hill to tell them, no, you can't do that. Because if there's nobody there to tell them no, they'll just keep pushing and pushing and pushing. And that's what has happened since September 11th. Now, can you imagine on September 10th, if someone had told you that in six months or eight months, we would have a secret torture program, we would have a system of extraordinary renditions where we're kidnapping people and taking them to third countries to be tortured. If someone had told you that we would have a secret archipelago of prisons around the world where we took people for torture. I mean, would you, would you believe me if I said that the CIA had hacked into the Senate intelligence committee's computers, they admitted it in a statement by the director and nothing ever came of it. So here's another, Nobody would have yeah, no, you. I mean, yeah, it would have been mind-boggling. Like, wait, is that the U.S. or that's some other country? Is that Russia? Right? You'd be thinking. Exactly. Like, I'd be thinking that might be Russia, not the United States. And here's another thing that 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 is is interesting, John. In that 
in that you've given you've given an example of how, for instance, and I think you I think you were talking about your your guy Abu Zabeda in Guantanamo, where you know CIA couldn't get a peep out of him, and they were slamming him up against the wall, and they were violating this and that and that, and then the FBI rolls in there, and he offers him a date, and he offers him a prune, and he starts you know, building a rapport with the guy, and yeah. they start cracking him. Oh can, yeah, that's it. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. You know, this is another fundamental difference. Um, and this is a difference between the CIA and the FBI. I, yeah, I say on my own radio show, Ian, all the time that we've got this disease in Washington, and the disease is uh, the smartest guy in the room disease, right? So many of our politicians, so many of our bureaucrats think they're the smartest guy in the room, and they won't listen to, to logic from anybody else. That's the CIA. They think they're all the smartest guys in the room. So you have CIA leaders demanding of the president that he allow them to take over interrogation of prisoners overseas. The FBI has been doing that since 1946, since the Nuremberg trials. They know what they're doing. They're good at it. They get results. But the CIA wanted to take over. Well, George W. Bush allowed the CIA to take over. And within hours of that decision, they began to torture Abu Zubaydah. Later, they tortured other prisoners as well. The FBI was, was so um, disturbed mm -hmm. by this decision that Robert Mueller, when he was FBI director, ordered all FBI employees to leave the country wow. where, the, where the torture was taking place yeah. so as not to be associated with it. What? But you look, you look at the aftermath, too. You look at what happened. What happened is as soon as they tor started torturing Abu Zubaydah, he clammed up. And he provided no actionable intelligence to save American lives. When the FBI was interrogating Abu Zubaydah, as you noted uh, in your intro, uh, you offer the guy some dates, you offer the guy a cigarette, you know, you show him a letter from his mother that the Red Cross delivered, and he's going to talk to you. You establish a rapport, you establish a relationship and a, and a certain level of trust, and he's going to open up to you. And to the FBI, he did provide actionable intelligence that saved American lives. Wow. So where does this where does this notion come from, John, in the culture of the CIA? And who knows? Maybe you do. You do if they were practicing uh, torture uh, elements of torture previous to you joining uh, the agency. But where does this where does this culture come from? And who's it sounds like Bush signed off on it and he agreed to it. And then he's on national TV and he's saying, he's saying we're not torturing. And then he kind of pins you in a hole and he's, and it sounds like, uh, some rogue, uh, agent of the agency may come out. It just sounds real messy, but who's, I mean, who, where does this incept? Where, where does, who and where in that organization has the idea that doing this to another human being is, is a good way to, to, uh, to solve a problem? Well, there, there was an echo chamber in the immediate aftermath of 9-11. You know, you've got a lot of alpha dogs at the CIA, tough guys, knuckle draggers in some cases, not necessarily intellectuals. And they're, they're, they're all, they all blame themselves, okay. rightfully, in the case of, of the 9-11 attacks. They blame themselves for the attack. It was the most massive uh, intelligence failure in American history. And so they need to make good for the American people. It's payback time. But when you have all these alpha dogs all barking at each other in the same room, they try to outdo each other. And remember, there's, there's little to no oversight from Capitol Hill. 
And so there's no one to say, no, you can't do that. There's no one to say, no, that's against the law. Nothing was against the law. You know, the you and Bybee memos uh, legalized everything. I mean, there were very specific laws prohibiting torture in this country, prohibiting exactly and specifically the methods that the CIA then used against Abu Zubaydah and others. So who is going to tell George Tenet no, or Jose Rodriguez, or Kofor Black, or any of the other uh, senior officers and, and counterterrorism people at the CIA? There was nobody to tell them no. And one thing led to the other, and the next thing you know, we've committed crimes against humanity. So who, who's got the ultimate jurisdiction over the CIA? The House and Senate Intelligence Committees. The question is, do they want to exercise that jurisdiction? And that's an entirely different issue. Okay. Wow. All right. So this is, uh, this is crazy stuff. Let's talk about your books. Can you describe uh, uh, the books that you've got now? Now, John, you were, it sounded like you spent like a million dollars defending yourself in court. Um, yeah. you're, 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 $1,150,000. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> Dude. I still owe them, them $880,000. Holy moly. Which I'll never pay. I'll never be able to pay. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, this is the Eastern District of Virginia, is that right? That's where you were tried? Yeah, the Eastern District of Virginia. It's, it's also called the Espionage Court because no national security defendant has ever won a case there. And something about, I don't know if it was the same judge that heard your case, but one of these judges, uh, she handpicked what she wanted to hear? How does that possible? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's just the way it is. In a national security case, everything's classified, and so so courtroom rules are different than they are in any other case. In fact, we had made a motion to declassify 70 different documents that I needed to uh, defend myself, and um, the judge we, – we had blocked off a day and a half for the hearings, and we walked in, and the judge said, I'm going to make this very simple and very quick. I'm denying all 70 motions, and that was the end of it, and we looked at each other and started walking out. And I said to my lawyer, what just happened? And he said, we just lost the case. That's what happened. Like, how do we defend you? How do we yeah. defend you if we're not allowed to present any evidence? Right. And then there was one point where, where we did have evidence to present. And, um, and uh, the prosecution became almost distraught that I was going to be allowed to, uh, to present this evidence. And so they asked for an in-camera conversation with the judge. Well, in-camera conversations, that means, that means without both sides being present. Um, they're normally prohibited in, um, in court proceedings. But because it was a national security proceeding, she allowed it. So my attorneys and I sat at the table while the prosecutors went into the judge's chambers with the judge. They came out 10 or 15 minutes later, and the judge reversed herself and denied my motion uh, to allow evidence into uh, into the uh, hearing. I have no idea what they said in there. They could have said that I was a, a spaceman, you know, from another galaxy. I have no idea. And and the court rules say I don't have a right to know what they said. And neither do my attorneys. How is this even possible? Because, because they're crimes against the country, I guess, right? Yeah, the thing is, is I was never convicted of any of those crimes. All those charges were dismissed. I mean, you, you mentioned I, I was charged with three counts of espionage. I hadn't committed espionage, and they knew I hadn't. 
and they ended up dropping all of those charges. But by then, the damage was already done. One of the tactics that the Justice Department uses is, is something called charge stacking, where they'll charge you with, well, in my case, five different felonies. Well, they, they knew I hadn't committed those felonies. But what they do is they wait until you go bankrupt. They wait until you're a million dollars in, in debt to your attorneys. And then they come back and they offer to, to dismiss all the charges but one if you just take a plea to make the thing go away. So it's not an issue of justice. It's an economic decision. You take a plea just to make this thing go away. You know, they offered me they offered me 30 months, in which case I would do 23. Or if I wanted to roll the dice, I was facing 45 years. And I knew because ProPublica had just come out with a study right in the midst of my trial that the federal government wins 98.2% of its cases. <laughs> so knowing I had a 1.8% chance of winning, you know, why, why would I not take the deal? Yeah. Um, okay, so I want you to talk about your books, but that yeah, it's, it's, it doesn't happen, happen in a moment. Uh, Truman on CIA. Now, this is interesting, and this was in that same interview uh, that I heard you give in Denver. Um, what? Truman signed the CIA Act, right? Is that yeah, right? National Security Act. Yeah, the National Security Act of 1947. And he later is quoted as sending a letter to the Washington Post basically stating that it was one of the worst decisions is this right of his presidency yeah uh, you know that's really interesting Harry Truman didn't really understand everything that he was signing that day Truman had told J Edgar Hoover in the months leading up to passage of the National Security Act of 1947 that the CIA once created, would become a division of the FBI. And that's why Hoover supported the bill's passage, because he thought he was going to be the head of both the FBI and the CIA. Well, in the final language, the CIA was created as an independent entity. And that was the genesis of, of the bureaucratic friction between the FBI and the CIA. But but within you know three years, the CIA had practically gone rogue. The, the first thing that the CIA did, literally the first covert operation that the CIA ever carried out, was to steal the Italian elections of 1947 um, by, um, huh. by planting uh, newspaper articles that just eviscerated the Italian Communist Party and then f by financing the Christian Democratic uh, conservatives. So it, it was that it was that illegal, really, intervention in a foreign election that got the CIA started. I mean, it only got worse by 1953. We were involved in Iran and and in the Dominican Republic and in Southern Africa and all over the place. Uh huh. Interesting. Uh, there's so I don't know if you know, but my so my my mother's British, so I have British family, and then my father i'm fifth generation californian my father's family arrived originally in quebec in 1640 from france and then san francisco in the 1890s so i kind of look at i look at history from those two lenses if you will and i'm always kind of making sure fresh branches can grow on the tree, if that makes any sense. And so I'm, I'm thinking, okay, hmm, is there any type of international influence on, 
shaping uh, the construction or an organization of the CIA. But that's interesting how you're talking about that Italian uh, kind of influence uh, or uh, policy shifts. Um, uh, very curious. Any comments of what I just said there? No, I, I think yeah. you're exactly right. And you have to remember, too, that the CIA's predecessor organization, uh, the Office of Strategic Services, OSS, right. was really a group of badasses who were parachuting behind Nazi and Italian fascist lines in the Second World War and blowing up bridges and, and meeting up with freedom fighters. And it, it was a completely hands-on paramilitary organization. Well, that changed in 1947. The OSS went away in 45, and then those those guys who had been the core of OSS uh, were the ones who who formed the new CIA with passage of the National Security Act. So when they first started, it wasn't this giant bureaucracy with analysts and scientists and admins and you know operations people. It was just a group of these guys who had just finished fighting World War II, but doing it in plain clothes up in the mountains somewhere with, with these freedom fighters. It took them a little while to get into the mindset of a bureaucracy. By 1947, it was still so early. I mean, the, the agency was just months old. Um, the idea was just to try to, I'm going to make up a word here, civilianize what they had already been doing during the Second World War. Got it, got it. And I mean, this is totally different from the FBI. I, the FBI... Oh. Totally, completely different from the FBI. The FBI had been around since the 1920s. Um, it was just called, uh, well, at first it was called the Office of Investigation, and then it became the Bureau of Investigation, then the Federal Bureau of Investigation. But uh, J. Edgar Hoover was actually there at its founding. He was the director, the first director. Really? And lasted 19, yeah, from 1927 to 19, whatever it was, 72 or 73 he died. Uh, I guess it was 72. So... Hoover, uh, the FBI was was Hoover. It, it was it was created in his in his image, mm -hmm. and he was the only director that organization knew. And then here you are, twenty years into it. I mean, twenty years in a job, people are already thinking of retiring, and that's when the CIA is created. He wanted to take that over too. He couldn't, and then still had another twenty five years to go. Who pressed who pressed that form, formulation of the CIA? Where where did that really come from? Um, it came from conservatives on Capitol Hill, both Democrats and Republicans, um, and and it came out of um, of the anti-communist fervor of the post-war era. Uh, you know, it, it was only another year later that the House Un-American Activities Committee and the Senate uh, Investigations Committee were created, and so. A lot of a lot of policymakers, not policymakers, but members of Congress, uh, believed that we needed some sort of formal, official governmental agency to counter communism, and that's really how it started. Okay, that makes sense. Um, uh, okay, so quickly uh, describe these these three books that uh, that that you've written and and that are now available uh, on Amazon. I'm assuming. Uh, describe those real, real quickly uh, for for us. Sure. Sure thing. My first book uh, came out in 2010. It's called The Reluctant Spy, My Secret Life in the CIA's War on Terror. It, it's published by Random House and um, did quite well. I made number five on the Washington Post bestsellers list. I was very proud of it. Um, my second book I wrote in prison. Uh, it's called Doing Time Like a Spy, 
How the CIA Taught Me to Survive and Thrive in Prison. And I actually won the Penn First Amendment Award for that book. Uh, it was very well received, well regarded, and um, it's still out there on Amazon. It came out in May. I had another book that came out in June that I wrote with Joe Hickman, a former Guantanamo guard, um, since I captured Abu Zubaydah. And then Joe took custody of Abu Zubaydah at Guantanamo. We wrote it together. And it's called um, The Convenient Terrorist, uh, Two Whistleblowers, Stories of of Lies, Deceit. So I forget exactly the rest of the – they changed it at the last minute. I don't remember the subtitle. But, uh, but it's The Convenient Terrorist. Okay, cool. Th- thank you, John. And, and those are all on Amazon. Do you have a website? Yeah, I have a website. The first book um, is, is no longer in print. It's in print and paperback. I, I own all the existing hardbacks, and I sell them through my website, which is johnkiriaku.com, J-O-H-N-K-I-R-I-A-K-O-U.com. Um, and and I, I sign them and dedicate them however you want. And then uh, Doing Time Like a Spy and The Convenient Terrorist are both on Amazon. They're both still in print, hardback, uh, the paperback. On my second book is coming out in the spring, and the paperback for the third book is not yet scheduled. John, what's your vision uh, for the next five years? How do you envision keeping America honest? How do you contribute to that? I mean, you've already oh, built a legacy. That, that's such a hard question. I mean, it, it, <laughs> at, at first blush, it ought to be an easy question, right? Yeah. It ought to be. We need real, true congressional oversight of the intelligence community. But the truth is we're never going to get that. What we have on the intelligence committees, and I mean both Democrats and Republicans, is not overseers but cheerleaders. And there's nobody up there with the guts to keep the CIA honest. You know, don't forget, as Americans, the CIA works for us. Right. We We own the CIA's information, right? Right. That information is owned by the American people, and the CIA has to report to us through our elected representatives, and they don't do that, and our elected representatives don't object. So what we need to do is we need to demand oversight. We need to demand of our elected representatives that they do their jobs and make sure that the CIA and other intelligence community members operate within the confines of the law. Another thing that I push on my program is keeping the Federal Reserve honest. And that's, I, I mean, that's a whole other discussion. And, and, and perhaps, perhaps at another time, if that's uh, something you want to uh, talk about. But, you know, that's, you know, that's basically the bank that's funding the government. And I don't really know how that stacks up to funding the CIA. But, you know, transparency on all levels. And it's not just our elected officials, but it's also those organizations systems the uh, the financing systems that that are that are that are that are financing uh the way that uh the the, the way that this government operates um that's yeah i yeah i agree with you for example why why has there never been an audit of the fed right i mean everybody else gets audited literally everybody else in government gets audited so why isn't the fed audited it just doesn't make any sense, and I don't think the government has ever given the American people the option. A proper response to that question. Right. No, exactly right. Sorry to cut you off. I, that's exactly no, no, that's right. It. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> John, uh, quickly, let me ask you a question, dude. So um, I've had I've had on my show 
a little while ago, I'm not sure if it was before you, I, I've actually had two guests that are of interest, and I just want your opinion. Um, it's not what you do, but I just want your opinion as, an, as, a, as, a, as a human being and, and, and as a citizen of the world. Um, so uh, Ken Caldera is a scientist. He's a fellow at Stanford, and he's presented to, um, he presented to, to Congress uh, something called the Carbon Cycle report. And uh, he was a lead author on that, uh, essentially trying to get um, trying to get uh, Washington a little more uh, 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 comprehensive in their in their action and in, 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 in rulings uh, to uh, to curb uh, greenhouse gases uh, to try to uh, fight uh, climate change um, yeah. on a totally other side of that kind of spectrum uh, is a guy named Dane Wigington. Now, it just so happens, uh, I spoke to Dane yesterday, and Dane is good friends with a guy named, I believe it's John Shipp. Uh, uh, Dane said he's a former CIA, uh, just like you, and that he uh, came Kevin out... Shipp. Sorry, th- sorry, Kevin? Kevin Shipp. Kevin, okay. Um, and so Dane is is, a fr- is friends with Kevin, and I don't know Kevin's story. I don't know what, what, what he's done. Uh, yeah, I, I actually spoke to Kevin today. Oh, you did? Yeah, wow. Kevin was a very highly respected... Uh, uh, Office of Security uh, officer at the CIA, and uh, well, he's got a terrible story. He was he was assigned domestically, and the house that the CIA re- uh, rented for him um, had a very dangerous uh, mold infestation, and uh, and the CIA told him to uh, like it or lump it. And there were some real health consequences for for Kevin and for his family when he complained. He was treated like a criminal because he was a whistleblower. And then when he went to the congressional oversight committees, then they put him on the blacklist. And he ended up paying for it with his career. Oh, my goodness. I had no idea. Um, okay, so maybe that's why Dane knows him. I don't know the premise of the relationship. But what Dane does, uh, have you heard of Dane Wigington? Are you familiar with Dane? No, I sure don't. I sure don't know him. So Dane's got a house in Northern California, Shasta County. Um, he was in Bechtel. Uh, he, he, he worked in, the, I think, the solar power uh, uh, side of Bechtel for a number of years. And he, he bought his home and he put solar panels on his roof. And he's, and he's realizing the uptake, a major decline in the uptake of, of solar activity. And so his research is, ex, is, is, is exposing um, what's called geoengineering and the, the side effects of geoengineering. And I had Ken talk about that very briefly. Again, Ken's based at Stanford. He's, he's a fellow there. And, 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 and so Dane... Dane's angle, and, and Ken doesn't talk about the side effects. He does, doesn't does he. He just looks at the, the data and the facts, and he and he writes about it. But but Dane comes out and says, hey, look, you know, part of this geoengineering, which is essentially an attempt to reflect those sun rays back in the atmosphere to curb um, curb the fossil fuels and, and, and the greenhouse gases. Um, he's, Dane says, look, I've got Dane. He's got he's got a lot of people that are reading what is what is researching. But he says he says, look, part of that is spraying these aerosols and, and emitting uh, aluminum particles into the atmosphere, which uh, which is happening. Um, and he says that barium is a side effect that is weakening, for instance, uh, roots in tree systems, and so making them much more prone to being incendiary and burning. Um, but what is, and this is, again, it's just, it had nothing to do with, 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 with any, I'm just, I'm just saying is climate change is affecting all of us. And I'm just looking at your opinion. Is this, is this something that, 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 uh, that you have an opinion on? You know, I apologize to you, Ian. <laughs> um, yeah. Because I, I really don't, I really don't know the issue. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I, I, I apologize. I feel like I can't really speak intelligently on it. 
no, I, I didn't. I didn't expect. I didn't expect you to. Um, but uh, but I thought I'd I'd, I'd I'd just throw it out there because uh, anyway, I, I, for some reason I wanted to throw it out there. Um, John, dude, I, I've got to. Uh, I've got to close out this session. I I am so grateful you came back on the program, man. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I'm happy to do it. Thanks for the invitation. Um, ladies and gentlemen, John Kiriakou, check out his books. Go to his website. And are you also on Twitter? Yeah, I'm on Twitter and Facebook, uh, John Kiriakou, at John Kiriakou. Very cool. John, thanks for coming on the program, and have a great day, dude. My pleasure. Thank you. Same to you. Ladies and gentlemen, John Kiriakou. Uh, that guy is, like, beyond super cool. Um, if you want um, any type of a legend to use and 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 I'm not talking about um a, an Alexander the Great type legend I'm talking about a legend like a standard or a beacon if you want any type of um legend to map your existence or your approach to um being a member of society what john stands for his ethics his morals are second to none and this country is incredibly incredibly uh, lucky to to have men like john Kariaku in it my opinion uh this has been your 4 o'clock special edition of Discussions on Winwood Radio. I will cut to a short break, and we will be back with the 5 o'clock edition.